This is a Media Lab podcast. Welcome to this very special kind of addition or addendum to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. Dave and I are here with writer, journalist, filmmaker Omar Mualam. Omar, thank you for joining us here on the show. Ah, oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. Dave and I right now, because of this uh, sentient machine that is forcing us to watch films each and every week, are stuck in the year 1982. And I thought before we jump into talking about your movie specifically, maybe you can speak a little bit to either 1982 in general or just 80s films. What is your impression of, of 80s cinema? I used to be a film snob. And if you were to ask me what the worst you know time for films were, yeah, I would say it was the 80s. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's some truth in this, but it's certainly, I think, the most crass era for films. Maybe before the the. 2020 2010s it feels like sure. we're kind of in a in a golden age of of crass filmmaking right now and, and maybe that's what it is i mean i just look at how the superhero story has dominated the box office and i think oh god what i would give for like a tron or a, a conan the <laughs> right. barbarian or just you know give me an give me an et not not that there's not great science fiction coming out right now there's actually some really great elevated sci-fi coming out right now my perception of film in the 80s used to be that like oh this is this is the one that you you skip (laughs) maybe (laughs) and a lot of that was just rooted in some in snobbery i mean my love of film was kind of rooted in two eras the 90s and the 70s the 70s because that was you know that was when film was edgy and provocative and people were taking risks and it was very anti uh, authoritarian or uh, anti-authority sure. <laughs> in some ways, you know, with a lot of other stuff that was coming out of the, the 1960s kind of transgressive subculture it took a few more years to catch up with cinema. But that's when I think we really start to see it with films like Dog Day Afternoon and A Clockwork Orange and Midnight Cowboy. It's actually kind of extraordinary when you think of these films coming out in the 70s and the kinds of films that people were used to just a few years before all the like Cary Grant stuff. It's, it's actually kind of amazing. Yeah. Like what a, what a shift in tone. This is what Dave and I kind of discovered slowly through 1971. Again, a microcosm of the beginning of the seventies, the production code kind of breaking down people just throwing things at the wall, trying to make things work. And it's just, yes, explosion of creativity and provocativeness. Some work, some don't by the end of the decade, you have this pullback. Studios are bought by more corporate interests, and that's what brings the '80s of being like, let's uh, let's slow down on all this transgressiveness, and let's just like show you the Coca-Cola money. of movies in some cases. And some of those are great, but I'm just saying, like that is kind of the difference between the '70s of and '80s. Of course, we're talking about American cinema yes. here as well, right? So, in a lot of ways, American cinema was just catching up with European cinema as well. That's correct. Yeah, but um, yeah, I mean, it's it's inter- you bring up the the end of the production code, and this is something that I'd I'd recently been um, well, not recently, about a few years ago, I was researching it for an article for The Ringer, which was about the history of uh, Muslim and Middle Eastern misrepresentation in film. Mm-hmm. 
And um, I, I guess I was kind of shocked to learn just how long the production code, which was basically a practice of sanitizing stories. Uh, people mm -hmm. say censoring and there's some truth to that, but I think it was more like the industry itself was kind of complicit. Um, and it was all about sanitizing stories for a middle American white audience. I was shocked to find out that that really just kind of came to an end in 64, 65. Yeah. So the 70s are, are important to me. You know, I was born in 85. And so, you know, I was sort of coming of age in the late 90s and 99 was a great year for film. And so the 99 specifically, but the, the late 90s in general as well, was also a really important year for me. And so mm. with that kind of framework of like 70s and 90s, great time for cinema, the 80s just looked just so kind of plastic. Yeah, plastic. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Being slightly older, I grew up watching films in the 80s. Kyle and I kind of talk about that a little bit, especially now that we went, we went 99, 71, now we're 82. So just like you're analyzing Omar, we're living it. <laughs> <laughs> so we start off in what I would also argue is one of the greatest years uh, of modern sort of uh, conception of what a good movie is in 99. There's so many movies that are still referenced and copied today. And then we went to 71 where I was so out of my element. We watched some very challenging films, but learning about how they came about and why the creators opted to do things that were so against the grain and that audiences actually paid ticket stubs to see these in theaters. Fascinating. And, uh, but I'm, I've become the apologist in 82 because I grew up with all of this plastic shit. And I love it. Yeah. It's <laughs> feed me more plastic is right. what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's hard to, it's hard to separate those things, right? The nostalgia. And in, in recent years, and especially, you know, since the pandemic, I've become much more inclined to watch horror films. Now, mm. of course, I, you know, I enjoy elevated horror more than anything else. It's the inner snob in me. But I love all, you know, all horror films. And, and the ones that I, I love maybe the most are ones from the 80s. And when mm. I think about it, like the 80s was the best, like one of the best times for, for horror films as well. Yes, they were mostly focused on, like they were mostly slasher flicks as well. But these are classic, classic franchises. I recently watched with my four-year-old daughter. Don't judge me. She loves horror movies. And um, Whoa. she's fearless. <laughs> recently watched um, Nightmare on Elm Street 3. This oh, is the one that takes what? place in the mental the, asylum. In the mental asylum, yeah. incredible film. It's great. Um, great practical it's effects amazing. in that one. Great. It's great. It's funny. It's it's actually pretty smart too. There's some conversations that the patients in that in that institution are having about like trauma mm -hmm. that would fit completely in in modern discourse. And it's a Freddy and it's a Freddy Krueger film. I like a lot of the Nightmare on Elm Street films, and I'm very anti. Friday the 13th, but we'll get there. We'll save that for another episode about my thoughts on that. Yeah, come back, Omar. We're, we're going to be there on Halloween, apparently. If you want a new, if you want a really fascinating, like, sort of trilogy, watch the first Nightmare on Elm Street, then number three, and then Wes Craven's New Nightmare. I just watched it again recently. Which is like his proto-Scream movie that he makes before he yeah. makes Scream. But it's a comment on the Nightmare on Elm Street movies it's with the so characters clever. playing the characters so that they clever. played and also the actors. It's like so weirdly meta. Oh, it's great. Uh, yeah, for me, it's it's like night, uh, it, the top three Nightmare on Elm Street. It's three, one, um, and then New Nightmare. Freddy comes into the real world, Dave. It's it's terrifying. When you fire me, Kyle. I know, you can bring Omar in. <laughs> I, I was just going to quip now your four-year-old daughter's watching that with you. My son couldn't get through Raiders because Alfred Molina got uh, beheaded and he had to turn it off. So, <laughs> so this this is like this is like wrong. part of my my daughter's <laughs> like personal brand or something like that. It 
started very, very young. Before she was two, she would see, as we were going through Netflix, she would like point to one of the posters and be like, that's the one. That's the one I want to watch. Mm. And it was inevitably something always terrifying. Mm. <laughs> and one of the first horror movies she watched was It. Oh, now, God. like, oh my God. as far as films you that terrify you when you're a child, it's It. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the, you think of, you were to ask like, someone what movie scared you when you were a kid. It's always It. It's me. I, me and my brother snuck out and watched that Tim Curry version of It, and it terrified me. <laughs> terrified me. Movies like that and like Child's Play are, should be particularly scary for children because the victims are often children. children. That's who they're going after. Being a, a, the bad parent that I am, I played it and I let it go and I let it play and she just loved it. And she's always been really interested in spooky things. And then, you know, as her, she sort of gained a concept of Halloween and, you know, skeletons and all the like spooky stuff that goes with it. She's just really drawn to it. So she is probably the youngest horror buff you'll ever meet. When the new Candyman was coming mm -hmm. out, she could not wait to see it. She wanted to see it on oh, opening wow. night. I took her and she did great. She did. She wow. was so I took her to see the new Scream. Mm -hmm. And right now, like her favorite movie to watch is the Babadook. Oh, that's a great one too. <laughs> Which, like, it's a great movie, and I'm talking about a movie of, about I'm trauma. I'm sick of watching it. Like that's... most parents should be sick of watching like Frozen, <laughs> and I'm like sick of watching the Babadook. <laughs> <laughs> if I have to see that top hat one more time for you, though, was there a film or filmmaker that inspired you to make your own movies? I studied. Uh, screenwriting at Vancouver Film School with the idea that I was going to be that I was going to do scripted film, you know, want to be a screenwriter, want to be a director, uh, want to be an auteur, if you will. Mm -hmm. And the filmmakers, you know, who inspired me in that direction are, you know, your typical late millennial mm -hmm. uh, influences, right? So we're talking Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, you know, these uh, sort of darlings of independent cinema Th those are the people who did i was joking before we we started the podcast i was joking about how all the the movies in the late 90s and early 2000s ended with the protagonists yeah. realizing they were also the antagonists and they had some split personality or something when i went to film school i wrote one of those films of course right yeah. that's like right so you know i never I, I i never became a screenwriter i dabbled a little bit in film and then i got into journalism kind of by accident and I was a journalist, you know, a journalist from 2016 to 2000, 2006, rather, to 2019 before I got roped back into film. And it was through a documentary, a documentary based on an article that I'd mm. written, a documentary called Digging in the Dirt with Dylan Reese Howard. And this new film as well, The Last Baron, kind of inspired by an earlier journalistic work that I did about Burger Baron. Mm -hmm. And so really, like when it comes to the films that I'm making right now, it's the journalism that influences it more than any one filmmaker. And with, you know, with documentaries, not that you can't have a visual style and approach to it, but you can't control, you know, there's just not as much control you can have yeah. visually and, you know, tonally and to the story itself, to the narrative that you can with a scripted film. If there's listeners out there who are exactly like David Yun and have never heard of the Burger Baron before, <laughs> Dave, where, where do you live? Dave, sorry, Dave grew where do you up live in, in the center of the universe called Toronto, so he doesn't. Yes, he's never yeah. heard of the Burger Baron. But where do you live now? Oh, in Calgary. You live in Calgary. Yeah, yeah. I've been. Okay. I've been here for ten years. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Calgary's been Burger Baronless for close to thirty years, I think. So <laughs> I get it. 
Makes I sense. get it. Yeah. Yeah. I, however, grew up in Rocky Mountain House, so ah. I had a Burger Baron, and Caroline was just down the road, so I knew the that, Burger Baron yeah, there, that too. Is the, that is the Burger Baron epicenter it there, because you got, like, Rocky Mountain House, Caroline, Sundry, um, Sundry and Carstairs. Yeah, White Court, though, is not super far away. But that is, that's, like, where mm-hmm. you'll find the Burger Baron cluster, in particular because of this one family mm-hmm. that has really concentrated in that that area so yes the burger baron was absolutely a constant for you as it was for me not just because i grew up you know uh in a burger baron family um in high prairie but because whenever i would go on hockey trips you know baseball uh trips for for hockey games baseball games whatever you know you inevitably end it end up in these other small towns that often have a burger baron mm-hmm. as well so it was it was always present so this is what i love about the documentary so much is like this thing that has been for me at least a constant in my life knew about it seen other burger barons throughout my entire life did not know one single bit of history about this place whatsoever. So the uncovering of that, like how it began, how it got taken over, the fact that there kind of was a franchisee sort of mentality and that kind of got broken down. I love the fact that not a single place is like another burger parent. Like they're, they're all their own like little fiefdoms that kind of run independently of one another. Yeah. They are. They're, you know, their fiefdoms is, is great. You know, if, if that's that's the perfect analogy for mm-hmm. for the way they run it. What what was your perception of it, though? So you had no idea of all this stuff. But what did you think it was? Here is my. Oh, like what did I think the documentary was or what did no, I think no, Burger no, no, Baron no. was? What did you think Burger Baron was? I just assumed it was like a very small scale McDonald's really is what I kind of just assumed it would be. Like I, to- I totally understood it was Canadian. I actually did not know it was primarily Western Canada. There was, I think, the documentary shows it did push out east a little bit, but predominantly the majority yeah, of them and, were Western Canada. And even into the U.S. as well. But yeah, I mean, it's always been, Alberta has always been the, the, the hot spot, right? I assumed that that's what it was. The hilarious thing about it, this is this, this is the shocking revelation, I guess I'm going to say on this podcast. I grew up with a Burger Baron, two Burger Barons not far from where I lived. My sister's first job was in a Burger Baron. I have never eaten in a Burger Baron in my entire life. Um, our family, for whatever reason, always went to the A&W that was in Rocky Mountain House when I was growing up there. <laughs> So that's what I, that's, that's what we did. Uh, <laughs> so it's weird how I've never <laughs> actually eaten any burger bear. And you still haven't? No, but after watching, I was like, I really want to, because that burger looks really good. And I really want to go and have this now. You're in Calgary? Yeah. Okay. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to Angel's Drive-In. Mm. You've heard of Angel's? Is that in Brentwood? I don't know. Okay. Very popular burger place. And it's like really quality burgers. It's, okay. it's tastes different from burger baron they make their own meat you know they don't just get sort of like stock supplier kind of stuff that you would find at a small town diner and the price is like it's much more than you would pay for burger at a uh, from burger baron sure but um the owner of it comes from a he's a young lebanese guy comes from a burger baron family their recipes like their sauces are burger baron sauces oh they make a mushroom burger that tastes like to actually taste better than your regular burger baron mushroom burger because the quality of the meat and the bread they make a baron burger that they call a deluxe burger but it's the exact same sauce mm-hmm. that they so go to angels and enjoy yourself an elevated burger baron ele- well dave we can go on a trip or <laughs> calgarian or i can take you to rocky mountain house and we can just enjoy the burger baron. i've been there for my previous life uh-huh. career um 
So yeah, I'll go to Angels. I'll, not, uh... not not to spoil the plot here too much, Omar, but it, like your father owned a, 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 one of the Burger Baron locations. Yeah, in High Prairie. That's right. Um, so um, the son of a Baron. Son, I should say the son of the son of a Baron and a Baroness. Okay. Um, because my my mom was a huge part of that as well, and that's 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 actually that's the truth. Like it's all almost all of them are like husband and wife run. Mm-hmm. Or husband and wife and children run. You'll f- always find sort of like a, a, a duo or like multiple generations there. And a lot of them from Lebanon or from Lebanon lineage, I guess. I mean, virtually all of them. Yeah. I, I mean, there, there's a couple of um, there's a couple of exceptions to the rule in one. The owner has, you know, was the guy who found started that one. And the owner is a Lebanese guy, but he recently semi-retired. And now there's a white woman who's running it with him but i think he still comes in all the time and <laughs> he's not letting go um in, sure it's done right <laughs> kind of effectively yeah <laughs> that was the impression i got they didn't want to participate or she didn't want to participate in the movie in valley mm-hmm. view there is a um there's a, a filipino team i guess a, a few of them who used to work there and they were employed by a lebanese guy and then he retired and then they recently took over and i just recently learned that the one in lac la biche for the last few years has been run by a, a white family as well some hmm. that took it over and are running it which is super funny because lac la biche is like the lebanese town sure 10 like percent of the town is lebanese and yet the mm-hmm. burger baron is not lebanese owned but whether these people will continue to run these places you know whether they have longevity is another question sure what i can easily say is that for the past 40 years the burger baron owners who have basically like the burger barons that have survived with the same owners for a long period of time have all been lebanese well i definitely recommend people go and view it if you are in canada you can watch it on cbc gem and i for the 45-minute uh, documentary, only had to watch 15 commercials, so that's uh, a great selling point. <laughs> it's not five, a great, it's, five per yeah. city. It's yeah, yeah. It something. All, they're it's, 30 it, seconds each, but I'm just saying <laughs> it, was, it was a lot. That is that's the incentive for subscribing to CBC Gem <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? is to not be tortured by the advertisements. <laughs> yeah, you're not the first person to bring that up, and uh, but definitely worth. I had so much and the fun same watching commercial, it. right? It's the same. Oh, commercial. I saw the same yes. commercial like sometimes three times in a row. But, I know. Uh, <laughs> I know. <laughs> Gotta fill the spots. That's right. Yeah. But definitely worth it. I don't. I, I'm assuming Dave, you feel the same way. I didn't actually let you say that, but. How did you feel about the documentary? That's fine. I'm used to it. Yeah. I'll just sit quietly for another (laughs) half an hour. No, I I guess the only perspective shift, of course, is that I'd never heard of Burger Baron before. So for me, the documentary and its expose or historical style is fascinating on its own right. So I can at least say that even if you have no idea what a Burger Baron is, the story is fantastic. And it's honestly, Omar, it's like paced really well. And I, I really enjoyed it. It had me hooked. My wife was asking me why I was staring at my computer this morning instead of, well, I'm supposed to watch Conan the Barbarian, frankly, but it was gripping. It's great. And uh, if she hadn't been working, I'm sure she would have enjoyed it too. And uh, I bring that only because Kyle knows she does not like watching movies with <laughs> sure. me. So I, I got to ask Dave, I as, a, as a fellow ethnic, did, did you come from an immigrant community? Like were your parents immigrants, your grandparents? Yes. Yeah. 
So I was going to bring this up. I, you see this more in Alberta than you do in Toronto, but people who are so proud of their generational fucking roots in in wherever they're from. But I will say my, my dad came in 72, my mom came in 76, and they're Korean. There are some interesting parallels. The only difference, I suppose, is that the vast majority of Korean people I grew up with, their parents didn't want their kids to have anything to do with what they had to sweat and strive for to achieve. So if they ran a dry cleaner or a store or whatever, they did not want their kids in that place. Whereas the uh, sort of, at least within the Burger Baron uh, narrative, that idea of trying to pass on the successful businesses was a fascinating thing to watch. We have the same, you know, almost like, you know, right? proto-Confucian idea of like the male and, you know, the son's got to do something, but it's often you got to be a doctor. So, like, you know, those, those stereotypes. Yeah. It's interesting because there's, there's a couple of things going on there. I mean, there's, they actually usually want a similar thing for their children, the Lebanese Burger Baron owners and Leban- like le- first generation Lebanese Canadians who get into the, you know, the, the service industry or own little, you know, independent shops like you're familiar with. They usually don't want their kids to go that route and they try to encourage them to pursue a more, you know, respectable, quote unquote, respectable career. Academic or- yeah, definitely not academic with Lebanese. Um, I can get into that, but it's, it's a different kind of culture. It's much more business culture. Mm-hmm. So it's usually like accountant or lawyer or dentist, something that is lucrative mm-hmm. and not necessarily, you know, prestigious, though there's some prestige for some of those. Um, <laughs> but what happens is that as they get older, and, you know, they can start to see, you know, that the work wears down their body and they start to basically see a uh, an end for themselves as running this business or even for themselves, like, you know, existentially for themselves. That's when they start to have second thoughts. And that's when the desire to keep it within the families, you know, it did so much for me and I want it to do the same thing for you. And it's, you know, it's my legacy and they take so much pride in these restaurants and these businesses and so much pride in in themselves for having succeeded with yes. something kind of humble that it becomes difficult for them to let go of and that's that's when it starts to change because that's the thing i heard over and over again my parents always told me go get a degree go you know go do this go do that and then after i did that they tried to rope me in back mm-hmm. into the restaurant and say what did you need a degree for Everything, you know, everything you need is right here. Um, That's, yeah, that's, that's kind of the difference. I mean, that, that cultural difference of why Lebanese people tend to push, you know, push their communities or their kids into business oriented financial paths has a lot to do with Lebanese business culture. And I don't think you want me to get this deep into history, but I'm going to do it anyway. I mean, this is, this is a mercantile society, right? So this is, you know, Lebanon historically, even before, you know, Arab colonization and the Arabization of it. It was a largely Phoenician society, which was um, a society of traders and it being this portway between Europe and Asia, East and West. Uh, The Silk Road went through Lebanon, right? All, you know, spices and textiles. And so it just in the same way that it, you know, it makes sense for lands say Wyoming to have like a very, I guess, rich farming or agricultural society, it made sense for Lebanon to develop as a business oriented society. And that has never left. Um, And so 
What's different with a lot of Lebanese immigrants as opposed to, say, like South Asian immigrants who came here to get their master's degrees or PhDs and they were a highly educated community of immigrants, most Lebanese people came here without even high school educations. You know, going back to the, the generations that kind of influenced and, and established or, or reestablished the Burger Baron, they were people who just came with the, the business guiles that they had. And they looked at the opportunity, the business opportunities they had. Okay, what do our customers want? What can I do? What's like the, the barrier to entry in this field? Okay, restaurants, I can, you know, the starting fee isn't too bad. I can learn on the job. Um, they weren't thinking like, how do I share my ethnic cuisine with these local communities? They were just like, white people like burgers and fries let's give them give them what they want <laughs> well that's that like the great thing in that documentary too where one of the people mentioned how like i was making a thousand dollars a day and you were and you're like you're selling a dollar hamburgers like uh they were 15 cents <laughs> like, yeah yeah he's like 25 cents yeah. and the fries were 15 oh, the fries were 15 yeah, yeah. yeah. he's yeah. like <laughs> a lot of burgers remember, yeah i remember yeah. his bottom line I mean, talking about history, like you are also, I talked about your multi-hyphenate here at the very beginning, but you do have a book called Praying to the West, How Muslims Shaped the Americas, which is, a, from what I can see, available at all available online booksellers. Although I always pitch getting your local book retailer to uh, send, it to, send it there to help support local. I used to work for right. Yeah, mm -hmm. If so, you're in Edmonton, yeah. go to Glass or Audrey's. If mm -hmm. you're in Calgary, go to Shelf Life Books. Mm -hmm. It's a travelogue of uh, mosques across the Americas. Um, so I traveled across, traveled to 13 regions from Brazil, up to the Arctic, where people wouldn't expect there to be uh, Muslim communities or vibrant Muslim communities, but maybe more importantly, where people wouldn't expect there to be a, uh, a deep Islamic history going back to enslaved Africans, mm -hmm. uh, up to indentured Indians in the Caribbean and, you know, Lebanese um, homesteaders and fur traders and so on, trying to uncover this lost and sometimes erased history uh, of of Islam in the new world. And essentially, you know, I make the argument that Islam is not, you know, it's not like a new phenomenon here. It's actually an essential strain in the DNA of our of the modern Americas and that it is, you know, it is as old to the Americas as any non-indigenous faith. Even going back as as far as, you know, Columbus. Here's an interesting factoid that I like to share and usually gets people kind of curious about it, but Columbus's interpreter was an Arabic speaker. Hmm. He was essentially, he was a Moor. And so he was the person who spoke to the first American indigenous people that they made contact with, thinking that they were uh, South Asian people what we would call now South Asian people, which means that the first words to pass from Eastern and Western, from the old world to the new world, were in Arabic, mm. were the sacred language of Islam. And that's, that's when American, Islam's, uh, American Islamic history begins. So that's really cool. You've just of offended a lot of nationalists, I think, Omar. <laughs> that's what I'm here for. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I saw a food documentary that talked about um, how Louisiana food is in fact largely influenced by Filipino immigrants, which I thought was interesting. Um, and so there's like, they had uh, Filipino workers come in, but there's this patriarch that uh, built a lot of the food and he started siring a lot of offspring that built the cuisine culture in Louisiana. And apparently many of the people there can draw their lineage to a Filipino man, which I think huh. would shock oh, a lot of people there too. I love that. 
I, I love stories like that. Um, I don't know if you've seen the Donut King. It's, you know, a movie very similar to The Last Baron, um, just by coincidence. But it's basically like take The Last Baron and instead of burgers, we're talking donuts. And ta- instead of Lebanese, we're talking or Lebanese Albertans, we're talking um, Cambodian Californians. Mm. Um, and it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a great documentary. I encourage everyone to to check that out. You know, I just love stories about in general, I love stories about um, immigrants. That's like the thing that kind of makes me weepy sometimes, you know, <laughs> everyone's got their thing. But I especially love stories about the kind of invisible influence of of non sort of non-traditional, non-white cultures in, in the West mm-hmm. because it's been overlooked and, and kind of ignored for so long. And people, <laughs> you know, people sometimes think like, what the hell, you wrote this like very serious kind of historical nonfiction book. And then you made this comedic documentary, like this one book's about, it's an international book. And this movie is just hyper-focused on small town Alberta. But actually they're kind of, they're very similar stories. And they were they are both about the invisible cultural influence of of non-traditional of non-traditional cultures and people that get overlooked in the west i think it's quite remarkable too how food and culture of course are so intricately linked and how different cultures meeting each other can produce this really interesting food culture i mean my one of my favorite stories being from canada i know there's a huge debate about whether pineapple belongs on pizza but the hawaiian pizza is invented by a Greek immigrant to Canada, goes on vacation to Hawaii and decides to come and make this when he returns back home. Like there's three different cultures there in the combination of making this. The best, like most potent example of that might be the Canadian, like the Halifax donor, Mm -hmm. which is like, okay, so the, (laughs) the meat itself is invented by a Greek immigrant, but he himself you know, was sort of taking German and Greek influences, but the Greeks were um, actually, you know, they got it from Armenian refugees from Turkey who were using like the Turkish cuisine or brought the Turkish cuisine to to Greece as as refugees. And then you come back to Canada and it's wrapped in a pita bread. Well, that's something that the Lebanese Canadian people added to it. And then you have the, the sweet sauce, which was created by a Greek Canadian, but it was created specifically for maritimers palates mm. because they you know they have kind of it's a penchant well <laughs> maritimers like sweet foods mm-hmm. um yeah. and also possibly a chinese food influence there like it's sure. it's it's thought that he was maybe copying the sort of sweet and salty formula of western mm. chinese food as well when he was conjuring that and that's that's just the halifax don't air because there's also a variant of that in Mexico called the tacos al pastor in the Middle East called the shawarma and you know Vietnam has its own version of it and Nigeria has its own version of it and so here you have this thing that started in Turkey you know maybe 200 years ago and immigrants take it to different countries or different regions and they they don't think about how's the best way that I can cook it they think about what do these people actually want to eat Mm -hmm. how can I make this work for them and then it takes on a different shape and form and that's just the story of food yeah that, that, i mean i think that's what you you were saying like food and culture are linked i think food is culture yeah yeah yeah. well now i'm very hungry so that's great uh, <laughs> omar if people wanted to stay in contact with you see what you're up to what's the best way for them to do so go to burger baron 
cbcgem.com, first of all, and you can um, find the link to watch that on CBC Gem. But you can also follow us as we expand The Last Baron into a feature film called The Lebanese Burger Mafia, which we hope will be out later this year or early next year. Very, very close to being done on it because there's so much more to this story mm-hmm. that The Last Baron uh, doesn't get to in 45 minutes. Yeah, go to burgerbaronmovie.com or follow our Instagram Burger Baron movie and you can follow the production there and get you know continuous updates on it perfect i look forward to it thank you so much thank you 